0: Hi, today we are cross-posting a bonus episode from Crisis Group's global podcast, Hold Your Fire, featuring our Africa director, Marithi Mutiga. Enjoy! Hi,
1: this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about politics in the Horn of Africa, the struggle for influence on the African side of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, and what appears to be a controversial new maritime deal between Ethiopia and Somaliland, a breakaway northern region of Somalia. The agreement would permit landlocked Ethiopia, which relies on neighbouring Djibouti for most of its maritime trade, to set up commercial operations at a leased military base in Berbera. Ethiopia's National Security Advisor confirmed on Monday that it would offer Somaliland a stake in its state-owned airline in return. The agreement also included recognising Somaliland as an independent nation in due course. Ethiopian Prime Minister Adi Ahmed's stated ambition to secure access to the Red Sea is a source of tension with its East African neighbours, and that's raising concerns about a fresh conflict in the Horn of Africa. At the beginning of this year, the Somaliland government announced it had struck a memorandum of understanding with Ethiopia. Somaliland would lease to Ethiopia 20 kilometres of its coast, at a location that hasn't been confirmed for the establishment of a military base. In return, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has pledged to give Somaliland's government a stake in Ethiopia's national airline, Ethiopia also, and this is more explosive, might become the first country to recognise Somaliland's independence. News of the deal has rattled the Somali government in Mogadishu, which for decades has rejected Somaliland's independence. Here's what Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud had to say about it. The question between Somalia and Ethiopia is
0: not how Ethiopia will Ethiopia access to the sea. That's not the question. We want Ethiopia to have access to the sea. But the question is how Ethiopia is going to have that access to the sea. That's number one And that we, if Ethiopia is ready, we are ready to discuss.
1: But grabbing a piece of land, we are not ready for that. The Ethiopia-Somaliland deal comes at a tough time for the Horn. Sudan's devastating war rages on, with more foreign powers now piling in. The conflict in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region has wound down. But Prime Minister Abiy and the leader of neighbouring Eritrea, Isaias Afwerki, have fallen out after a rapprochement some years ago. Other Horn of Africa leaders are watching anxiously the emergence of an increasingly activist Ethiopian policy in the region. The Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden are, of course, in the news today because of strikes from Yemen by the Houthis on shipping lanes that carry about 15% of global sea trade. But already for some years, competition in the Horn for access to those waterways, competition that involves African, Arab and other powers, has been growing more fraught. To talk about all this, I am very happy to welcome back onto the show Mariti Mutiga, Crisis Group's Africa director. Mariti, welcome back on.
0: Good to be back on, Richard.
1: So we'll talk about Horn of Africa politics, Ethiopia, Eritrea, the war in Sudan, some of the Gulf and other outside involvement. Plus, take advantage of having you on, Mariti, to talk also a bit about Kenya's role in the region. But let's start with this prospective deal, this much-talked-about memorandum of understanding between Addis Ababa and Somaliland. Do you want to give a bit of background as to how it's come about?
0: So, Richard, this deal landed like a bit of a thunderbolt on New Year's Day, and we should see it in a couple of ways. I think one of the most important is that in most of recent history, Ethiopia has essentially been a status quo power. It has been a power that seeks stability, stability, fairly conservative. Um, But in recent years, we are seeing Ethiopia begin to behave in a much more revisionist fashion. Of course, we have to be careful not to overstate Ethiopian reticence. You know, let's remember that in not too recent memory, they staged a very disastrous invasion of Somalia. They also fought a very bitter border war with Eritrea and have skirmished very heavily with the Sudanese armed forces. But broadly, Ethiopia has been quite conservative and cautious in recent years. A couple of things have changed. One is that they have a new prime minister now who's young, quite ambitious, you know, seems to want to break things before building them up in his own uh, vision. And so this seems to have been something very much driven by the desire of the prime minister to do this. I think the second thing that has changed in the region is that Ethiopia helped to fashion a lot of important institutions that really served as restraining and countervailing forces to the forces of instability. And so you have the regional bloc, IGAD very much fashioned in Ethiopia's uh, image. So a lot of that is in flux. You have new leaders almost across most of the major countries in the region. And therefore, the Ethiopians just have been talking about over the last few years that they want to establish an access to the Red Sea, a lot of people thought that they were talking about Eritrea. I think Somaliland emerged as an opportunity which was potentially beneficial both to the leadership in Somaliland which faces an election this year and to the leadership in Ethiopia which found it convenient. I would say though that it has been handled quite clumsily, and primarily because, ideally, it should have been negotiated not just with Somaliland, which Somalia considers a breakaway republic, but also with the leadership in Mogadishu.
1: And Mariti, concretely, where does the deal stand? Do we know if it's actually been signed?
0: So, I think one of the pithiest uh, descriptions of this deal, that it's a memorandum of misunderstanding, which was a quote from one of the British... Uh, diplomats that basically we know very little about it. We have not seen the contents. We don't even know whether it's written down or not. I think we have a rough sketch from what we've had from both Somaliland and Ethiopia. One is that Ethiopia will seek commercial sea access through the Babra port, which is this large investment port that's been built up partly with Emirati, but also partly with British money. But then also, Ethiopia would like to establish a military toehold on the Red Sea. I think the precise location has not yet been revealed. They are keeping this very close to their chest. We know what the minimum that both sides want from this. The Somalilanders have been very clear that nothing can progress without official recognition. Of course, if Ethiopia, which is such a large and important country, recognizes Somaliland, then they calculate and hope that a wealth of other countries will follow. I think the Ethiopians basically Prime Minister Abiy, and I'm sure we'll discuss this shortly, has basically said that they seek to break this situation, which they see as a historical injustice of basically being such a large landlocked country, and they would like to obtain both naval and commercial sea access in Somaliland waters.
1: And Mariti, just until recently, well, up till now, most uh, the vast majority of Ethiopian trade that goes through sea routes. That's gone through the port in Djibouti. What's the problem with the Djibouti port? I mean, why is that no longer seen as sufficient?
0: That's a really important point. And of course, it's very important to also view this from the Djiboutian standpoint. Um, Djibouti became the primary outlet to the sea uh, for Ethiopia following the very bloody war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which effectively saw Ethiopia lose access to ports on Eritrean waters. There are a couple of issues here. One is that Djibouti has invested very, very heavily in creating a road corridor, in building up its port capacity. In fact, Djibouti up to a few years ago had the biggest debt to GDP ratio. They borrowed a lot of money from China, primarily to serve this big Ethiopian market. There are two problems with it from the Ethiopian standpoint, which is that they have to pay um, a quite steep fees from their perspective to basically access the port. And then the second point which they make is that Ethiopia can use multiple ports within the region. You know, it's a country of 120 million people. I don't think they have declared that they will completely stop using the Djiboutian port. But you can see from the reaction in Djibouti that they are very upset about this. They're very panicked essentially because they have bet the house on serving the Ethiopian economy. They have invested in all these port and land corridors. But Ethiopia feels that the lease arrangement doesn't really work for them because they have to pay fairly steep fees at a time when most countries in the region have very low access to hard currency.
1: So we heard up top Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud Obviously, the MOU, not something that he, that Mogadishu welcomes in any way. I mean, how has his government responded?
0: So I think this is very unwelcome news for Somalia, obviously. Somalia's government has a lot to deal with. They've been trying to prosecute this massive offensive against al-Shabaab with very mixed results. But it is particularly unwelcome because President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, who came to power on the back of a very protracted electoral process, has tried to take a very different approach from his predecessor, President Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo, which is that he's tried to repair relations with neighbours. He's tried to essentially rebuild and repair ties with the various actors within the region who had very frayed uh, ties with the Farmajo administration. He's also been very focused, for example, on uh, reviving the Somali economy. They recently achieved uh, the debt write-off for their very large stock of debt. So this was very unwelcome news. And you can understand the response from Mogadishu from a number of perspectives. Of course, Somalia is tragically, a state which is one of the weakest in the world. But I think people underestimate the power of Somali nationalism. And this has struck a nerve. It basically has infuriated a lot of Somalis, not just within Somalia, but broadly elsewhere in the diaspora, who feel that essentially what they might perceive as their old enemy Ethiopia is taking advantage of the general weakness of Somalia to essentially gain access to a naval foothold on what they perceive As Somali soil, although, of course, the Somalilanders would contest that. So, how has he responded with very aggressive? A diplomacy. He's tried to rally both the region, the African Union, um, and various friends of Somalia further abroad to protest against this. I think in practice, what Somalia can do to completely prevent it is open to question whether they actually have the capacity, given Ethiopia is a much more powerful country. I think it's open to question, but I think the Somali response has been quite deft. It has been well informed. It has been measured, but of course, to respond to public fury by trying to rally as many of Somalia's friends to their side as possible.
1: And one of the main beneficiaries in the past of the Somali nationalism, particularly anger, uh, Somali anger against Ethiopia that you talked about, has been Al Shabaab itself. The group really gained in influence and prominence during the Ethiopian invasion 20 years ago that you mentioned earlier. And as you say, the government, together with some clan militias sort of north of Mogadishu, has been mounting. This offensive for some time now against al-Shabaab, it seemed initially to go quite well. I think we were more sceptical about how much it would turn the tide against al-Shabaab and that fighting the group further south, where it's more entrenched, would be more difficult. And sure enough, even in the centre, al-Shabaab seems to be digging in. But how has the announcement of this Ethiopia-Somalian deal, how has that played into the government's struggles against al-Shabaab?
0: So Richard, it's an important question for all the reasons you outlined. I remember having a conversation with a Somali government official towards the end of the year. And they made the point that in their perspectives, Al-Shabaab has never been as comfortable as it is today. The movement was heightened by developments in Gaza to the extent that they said that um, the Israeli ambition of trying to completely crush the Hamas movement and resistance was clearly going to be a failure. And that was in their perspective and in their uh, media output by the end of the year, one of the primary themes they were putting across. I think the second thing is that they said that the Somali government has never been more ineffective. Um, You've had these crushing climatic stresses with a famine that went on for nearly five years and then very historic floods in recent months. Uh, But the Somali government, naturally, because it's not very strong, had to depend very heavily on the UN and on other external agencies. And the Al-Shabaab messaging was that, why can't we get our act together as a Somali nation and handle some of this crisis internally? And then that, even before Prime Minister Abiy and President Muse Bihi of Somaliland announced this maritime deal, part of the propaganda Al-Shabaab was putting out was that where do you think that Ethiopia will turn for its declared intention to get sea access? They're unlikely to go to Eritrea because Eritrea is strong. It has a strong army and they are likely to come to Somalia and take the water. So, of course, Al-Shabaab will be feeling vindicated. They already are pumping out a lot of messaging and saying that we have always said that we are the standard bearers of Somali nationalism. We are the ones that can defend Somalia. And this is, frankly, very problematic. I think that there's a risk that Al-Shabaab will try and take advantage, try and rally more recruitment, try and exploit the moment Although, of course, it's still early days. This memorandum, we've not seen it yet. We don't know how far they will go ahead with implementation. So I think we have to be cautious. But from its public messaging, Al-Shabaab is essentially growing.
1: And Prime Minister Abiy must have known the degree of anger that this would cause in Mogadishu. And as you say, Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud has tried to sort of improve relations with Ethiopia. So why embark on what would clearly be an unpopular move in the Horn? What was motivating
0: Abiy? So Richard, I think people that have been carefully watching his pronouncements and even observing, you know, basically listening to what he's been saying, both in private and in public, will know that restoring sea access for Ethiopia as Ethiopia sees it is a massive priority for him. I think Abiy sees restoring sea access as his calling card, as what he hopes to achieve during his time in power. I think, though, that what unsettles the region a bit is that he can be quite impetuous and a bit unpredictable in his approach. The eminent British historian Christopher Clapham on the sister uh, podcast, The Horn rather politely called him an idiosyncratic leader. But I would say that people in the region might use stronger terms, which is that they find Ethiopia unsettling. I think that Ethiopia knows that uh, some of these moves will cause a disquiet, but Prime Minister Abiy is willing to take the risk. And that can be a source of considerable anxiety within the region.
1: Mariti, I mean, if Prime Minister Abiy is so determined to restore Sea access to Ethiopia. This doesn't actually do that, though, right? I mean, he's not threatening to annex Somaliland. So Ethiopia will still be dependent on a deal with the government of another country for its sea access, which is why I think, you know, as you say, Al Shabaab may have predicted that Ethiopia would seek its sea access through Somaliland, but I think most people, even us included, and certainly many regional leaders, saw Abiy's proclamations that he would restore sea access to Ethiopia mainly as a, as, as a threat that he would try to do that through Eritrea, which, of course, you know, before its independence was Ethiopia's sea access.
0: So, Richard, if we cast our minds back to the peace agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea that sought to end this frozen conflict from 1998 to 2000, I think the understanding then was some sort of that they were going to agree some grand bargain of consociational rapprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, that Ethiopia would then regain access to the port in Assab, potentially even to Massawa.
1: Assab and Massawa are the two
0: Eritrean ports, in essence. Yes, absolutely. And then when Abi then rekindled this talk about regaining sea access and actually even said directly that um, uh, they'll try and do it by diplomatic means or otherwise. So a lot of people were very worried about the potential of a new conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So to a certain degree, yes, this was a diplomatic manoeuvre to try and gain sea access through Somaliland. Does it still depend on another entity, and which means that it's not strictly Ethiopian direct access to the sea, I think the Ethiopians would see it a bit differently, which is that this is a lease of uncertain duration. And so essentially it would be operated and run by Ethiopians, unlike the situation in Djibouti where they basically have to depend on Djiboutian operators as well as the Chinese managers of the port. So, it is not absolute expansion of Ethiopian territory, but a lease. Of course, in Somali eyes, this is annexation. This is completely unacceptable. But the Ethiopians would argue that basically they are leasing the sea access from Somaliland in exchange for whatever consideration, most likely recognition.
1: And so, we don't know precisely where the Somaliland government will lease. Ethiopia the chunk of coast that they're talking about for the naval base but the big Somaliland port is Berbera port and the Emirati shipping company DP World has a majority stake in that port. Now the Emirates Abu Dhabi like western capitals have said that they respect Somalia's sovereignty and territorial integrity so in principle coming down against the idea that Ethiopia would recognise Somaliland's independence. So how should we see sort of Abu Dhabi and the,
0: the, the Emirates' role in some of this? I think two things on that. From what we've heard from Somali government officials, they would not really object so strongly if Ethiopia was only seeking a commercial seaport in Somaliland. And I think the Barbara port has been under development with Emirati, but also British money over the last few years. And it's not been particularly contentious, although um, Mogadishu still doesn't particularly like the idea of Somaliland carrying out these bilateral engagements. But I think the Emirati role in the region has become very pronounced and very prominent in recent years. I think what we are seeing is a crystallizing of a number of alliances with the Emiratis on one hand and the Saudis on the other. As you know, Richard, the Saudis and Emiratis have had their uh, differences in recent years uh, within the Gulf. But now we are seeing the Emirates Basically aligned with the Ethiopian government, uh, they deny this, although I think there's quite a bit of evidence that they also have been supporting the rapid support forces.
1: The rapid support forces, which we'll talk about in a moment, are the Sudanese uh, former paramilitaries that are on one side and actually rapidly advancing, seemingly having the battlefield advantage uh, in Sudan.
0: Yes, absolutely. They symbolize to a certain degree something new in the region, which is paramilitary forces, which sometimes can take on national armies, which is very troubling. But yes, I think we see on the one hand this incipient alliance between the UAE, Ethiopia, and probably the rapid support forces. But on the other hand, we see the Saudis uh, in loose alignment with the Qataris, the Egyptians, uh, the Eritreans, and of course others uh, being forced to choose or being relatively neutral. It's not surprising, therefore, that a lot of people, when this announcement came through, so that it might intensify this competition. But I would add a very important caveat, which is that we should not underestimate, for example, Somaliland agency in this. Some tell us that the Somalilanders spotted an opportunity when Abi began to talk about uh, regaining sea access, you know, to basically advance their quest for recognition. The Ethiopians also have a lot of agency in all this. Uh, But given the UAE has been the primary financial actor behind Barbara, I think a lot of people then began to view it as of a peace, even if the Emirates did not drive it, but as of a peace with these crystallizing rival alliances.
1: Maurici, I want to move in a moment to Sudan, as you talked about, and also some of the sort of Red Sea questions there. But before we do that, could we just, I mean, you mentioned Eritrea, President uh, Isaias. So, His relations with Prime Minister Abiy, again, there was this deal, and actually, by all accounts, the Emirates and the Saudis at a time when they were getting along a bit better back in 2018, appeared to have played a big role behind the scenes in this rapprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. So that was 2018. Then there was the war in Tigray, in which Eritrean troops were fighting alongside federal forces against the Tigrayans. But now it seems really since the end of that war, since Prime Minister Abiy has arranged some sort of accommodation with Tigrayan leaders, that relations between him and Isaias have really plummeted. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: One of the tragedies of the Horn, and one of the reasons um, the region is one of the most unstable parts of the continent, is that each war seems to lead to the next. And because a lot of these wars end in stalemates or in unsatisfactory victories, um, it tends to be that As soon as parties end the previous war, they begin to prepare for the next, which I know sounds a bit of um, an inflation of the point, but when you look at the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea in 1998 to 2000, neither of the parties was fully satisfied with the way that concluded, and they continued and this was primarily between the Eritrean government of Isaias Afuerke and the melezenawi Zenawi-led Tigray People's Liberation Front government in Addis. And therefore, those grudges were kept alive and very tragically then played out in this hideous war that Ethiopia just went through from 2020. Again, the peace agreement that basically ended that war was essentially a very lopsided accord between Prime Minister Abiy and the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which frankly was facing a lot of military pressure, but also was under pressure from their people who had suffered a savage blockade and needed an escape from the war. Isaias Afwerki's government was very unhappy with the peace agreement reached in Pretoria, primarily because they had sought to completely crush the TPLF. They never succeeded in this effort. And now they were very unhappy, as you mentioned, to see that some sort of arrangement has been agreed between uh, Prime Minister Abiy and the leadership of the TPLF. I think you have a situation now very similar to the past, which is that neither of the parties is completely committed to the peace agreement. Neither of them trust the other fully. And the danger is that even if war doesn't recover very soon, I think a lot of um, uh, trust building is still needed, you know. And now the trust building needs to occur in a context where institutions within the region are not functional, where both the leadership in Eritrea and Ethiopia say the worst things about each other. And the TPLF obviously is extremely... Aggrieved at the abuses that were perpetrated within Tigray. And so you have all the ingredients, unless there is very deliberate trust building over potential recurrence of conflict. And basically now you're in a situation, unfortunately, of no war, no peace.
1: Let's turn then to Sudan, which we've talked about quite a bit on the show before. So, primarily a struggle between the rapid support forces that you talked about, the former paramilitaries led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. Hometi, as everyone calls him, a force with its roots in the genocidal war in Darfur. So a struggle primarily between the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, and the Sudanese Armed Forces. But as the war has gone on, what was mostly a local fight for power, as we feared, has seen outside actors weigh in more forcefully. It's generally accepted that the Emiratis are arming the RSF, though Abu Dhabi denies that. And certainly we hear from some African leaders that they worry that the RSF's advances east towards the Red Sea, toward Port Sudan, that again, the Red Sea ambitions of the Emirates are part of that. And then on the Sudanese army side, Egypt traditionally has been seen as their main external backer, but now it also seems that others are weighing in. Plus, there are signs that Ethiopia and Eritrea potentially also getting involved, at least near their border areas.
0: Richard, I think what we see here is, as you say, what we feared from the beginning, which is, you know, it's trite, but the longer it takes to try and resolve a conflict, the more difficult it becomes. And the more that it acquires dynamics of its own, and it becomes just much harder. You draw in more external actors, the fighting forces become more entrenched. And really, the tragedy is that we are witnessing that in Sudan. I think even for such an unstable region, we haven't seen a war like the one in Sudan, for many, many years, we haven't seen a war that was fought in the capital for months um, that basically laid waste to a whole important center of the country, which was the place of refuge for millions of Sudanese historically shielded from the conflict in the rest of the country. I think we haven't seen a national army deteriorate at this since we saw the war in Somalia in the early 1990s. And it's really frightening to witness just the emptying out of the whole elite, the commercial, the political, the intellectual elite. Um, So I'm I'm always hesitant to say that a country is hurtling into almost failed status, but, you know, we've resisted adopting such labels for a long while. But tragically, if Sudan doesn't pull back, this war will really mean that it will take decades uh, to repair the country. And that really just underlines the need for very urgent diplomacy. So yes, we are seeing a much greater proxy dimension today. Uh, The UN experts report uh, recently pointed to very substantial Emirati support, potentially through Chad of the rapid support forces. In recent weeks, we've seen more credible reporting that the Iranians, um, you know, who, let's remember in the region, they tend to exercise a lot of strategic patience. They tend to disappear, and then they come back quite forcefully. And by all accounts, they now are arming the Sudanese armed forces. Yes, the Egyptians much prefer the Sudanese armed forces, but I have to say that the Egyptians have been much more restrained than people expected, probably because they are quite distracted now with Gaza. But the hard edge of some of this proxy conflict from some of the reporting is that the Eritreans are essentially allying with groups that are much closer to the Sudanese armed forces. And the Ethiopians, not directly, but you know, the perception is that because the Emiratis support the RSF, that they could be loosely aligned or at least could share some strategic interests in at least making sure some of their borderlands are controlled by forces friendly to them. And do you think, Mariti,
1: there's a chance that the RSF continue to advance and actually manage to seize
0: Port Sudan? So I think it's really important to say that nobody can really win this war in Sudan militarily. What you are most likely to have is an an insurgency that resists any actor that seeks to impose themselves without consensus. And so the rapid support forces, they have a lot of bluster. They say, yes, we can march uh, to the east. We can basically take the whole country militarily and then find some sort of arrangement with various civilian actors to fashion a government. I think that underestimates the complexity of Sudan, a very diverse country, a country where a very substantial amount of people even if they hate the Sudanese armed forces abuses in the past, especially in the northern center, strongly support um, uh, 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 SAF, or even if they don't support SAF, very strongly detest the RSF. In recent weeks, we've seen SAF try to push back against the RSF's advances. It's not clear how far that will advance, uh, but what is striking is that the Sudanese armed forces doesn't look completely coherent, neither does the RSF. They're all a motley collection of various militias, more and more are directly armed, more and more under the tutelage of local warlords. And so it's really a folly to imagine that anybody can just crush the other and win.
1: And in that light, Mariti, what do you make of this recent diplomatic tour by Hemeti, by the RSF leader around Horn of Africa, other African capitals? But in in some of those capitals, he was almost given a sort of red carpet treatment. Why do you think Horn of Africa leaders were ready to give him that sort of welcome?
0: So that's tough to say. I would say that the primary issue is that the regional bloc EGARD has been trying to pull together the belligerents for a while. A big meeting was scheduled for the December 28th it never really worked out, but the eager leaders felt they came very close. What we've heard from some of them is that, A, they seek to engage with all the parties, but B, that the Sudanese armed forces has been quite reluctant to engage until the military dynamics change. And so there could be a degree of frustration with General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader of the army, that he has not been more willing to come and engage uh, in these mooted talks. And then, to a certain degree, the Sudanese armed forces, frankly, have not done themselves favors. You know, there's this report that the Islamists have gone back in control, for example, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, the ministry recently declared that they had left IGAD, which is the regional bloc, at the RSF, which is very adept at propaganda, very quickly. Uh, put out a statement saying, no, Sudan is a steadfast member of IGAD. So I think the messaging from Sudanese armed forces has not been particularly astute. Of course, from their perspective, the RSF are war criminals, and they should not be entertained by any external actors. But you can also see the point of the IGAD leaders, that you can't resolve a conflict without engaging all the parties. Um, So it's a mix of factors, and I have to say some of this is in the realm of speculation
1: so i want to move to kenya in a moment but just before we do that mariti when we're talking about sudan somalia eritrea ethiopia and the involvement of arab middle east powers in the horn it's easy to overlook the role of african leaders themselves and how adept they've often been at playing off outside powers against one another whether that was you know a decade ago it was really qatar and to some degree turkey vying for influence on one side and the Emirates, Saudis, to some degree, Egypt on the other, or today when the Emirates and Saudis appear to have fallen out and it's that rivalry playing out as well. But how how should we understand that dynamic? How should we understand who's in the driving seat?
0: Yes, so I think it's really important to remember that actors in the region have a lot of agency, even when they come from weak states such as Somalia. You would think from a distance that there's a lot of asymmetry, but they're very expert at playing off one camp against the other. Um, I think that, for example, the president of Eritrea is a past master in this game of basically... Um, not completely allying with anybody, but drawing benefits from multiple actors. So at various points, he will have a rapprochement with the West before very quickly terminating it. And then he'll have a dalliance with China and then with the Iranians and then with the Saudis and then with the Russians. And actually, uh, in fact, they tell us privately that they don't ever feel as if they're the ones calling the shots when they engage with Eritrea. What's a bit unusual, though, is that uh, um, for the last few years, at least since the Arab Uprisings, it has seemed like actors from outside are making the music. And so previously, it was the Qataris, to a certain degree, in alliance with Turkey, basically uh, supporting the various uh, Islamist uh, governments across the western flank of, of 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 their region, and then you you now have a very aggressive um, uh, UAE, which uh, seems to have picked sides in the Sudanese civil war, has a very strong partner in Ethiopia, and um, you know somebody mentioned the other day that. Other actors are out of breath trying to catch up with the Emiratis. So I think what's a bit unusual is the degree of aggressiveness and the degree of risk-taking that we are seeing from external actors. It's always to a certain degree been there. Uh, but of course, they do find partners within the region and these partners extract a lot of benefits from aligning with the various actors.
1: Let's talk briefly then about Kenya as you're in Nairobi. So President William Ruto seems to have tried to carve out this regional, even global role for Kenya, sending troops to the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, trying to send police to lead a mission in Haiti. Several Western diplomats that we speak to come from meetings with Ruto, impressed by how he's able to articulate in a compelling way the the, the reforms that he and other non-Western leaders would like to see in international financial institutions. What do you make of his sort of foreign policy ambitions, his aspirations to play this this wider role, and and how does that fit into you know what seems to be quite a difficult moment in the Horn?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Richard. And I would say that one of the things about Ruto is that he obviously came to power in what was viewed as an upset victory. He ran this very plucky campaign and positioned himself. Um, you know, in a very clever way that basically hoisted himself into the presidency. He's young, he's very ambitious, and I would say a couple of things. One is that he's basically filling an Ethiopia-shaped hole in the region, which is that historically it was to Ethiopia that much of the international community turned uh, when it came to helping to stabilize various things within the region. And so he's been very adept at positioning himself that way, but his ambitions go beyond the region. He has been particularly uh, vocal in trying to craft some sort of coherent African position on the climate crisis He's not always persuaded everybody, but it's been something with which obviously people enjoy engaging with him. Kenya hosted a big Africa Climate Summit, and it's a big subject uh, that he seeks to have an influence in. So yes, certainly, uh, Kenya is 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 really trying to position itself as a major regional actor. It's
1: something maybe of a of a paradox that Prime Minister Abiy in Ethiopia, who in his early days in office came in with so much promise, but has ended up being, in some ways, a a source of anxiety for the region, whereas Kenyan president William Ruto, obviously a very different history, had faced charges at the International Criminal Court, quite a bit of consternation, I remember, in Kenyan civil society when he came to office, has ended up positioning himself not just as a regional leader, but also as a friend of of the West.
0: Yes, Ruto seeks to position himself as close to the West, but a lot of the Kenyan uh, government's positioning partly reflects a pragmatic economic calculation, which is that for many years now, Kenya has been very close to the Chinese, uh, borrowed a lot of money for major infrastructure projects. But we see the Chinese in a period of retrenchment and of stepping back a bit from the huge investments on the continent. Kenya has very substantial debt. And I think Ruto quite cannily decided immediately upon taking power that it would be better to build these ties um, uh, with the West. And then in terms of the comparison between Ethiopia and Kenya, I think it's worth remembering that every Ethiopian leader struggles in the early days. And it's a very complex country, a country that was... It was, was an empire struggling to become, and is struggling to become a state. Obviously, that's always a very complex juggling act. I think you can avoid taking risky gambles, but it's not the easiest country in the world to govern. And so I think that the contrast between Ethiopia and Kenya is that Kenya seems to have a social compact that most people accept. And you can see that Kenya, being a relatively open society, it deals with its problems and its challenges in a transparent way so when you come to kenya you'd think the country is collapsing because debate is so cacophonous but that's because it's a society where everything is debated and i think that guarantees kenya long-run stability to a degree that some of the more authoritarian countries in the region don't enjoy
1: So we've talked about leaders in the horn. We've talked about some of the Gulf involvement. Maybe you can just say a word or two about uh, Western powers, uh, the US in particular. Now, as is clear, there's a lot going on in the region. There's the terrible war in Sudan. There's this sort of resurgence of Ethiopia-Eritrea tensions after the the, the end of the Tigray War. Now this Ethiopia-Somaliland MOU causing disquiet. And although the region is still obviously strategically important, particularly with everything going on in the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden. It seems that the US is clearly not as engaged as it used to be. Maybe that's bandwidth. There's a lot going on elsewhere. Maybe it's because with so many others involved, uh, Washington just can't sort of bend things to its will in the way that maybe it felt it once could. We talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but for whatever reason, it does seem less invested, less involved.
0: So the US used to... Play quite a muscular role in the region, and not always to good effect. But in general, it had the convening power; it could corral actors together, and it could basically, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, support and 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 basically almost guarantee peace agreements. Um, that that has faded in recent years. Partly, I think it reflects a conscious choice in America, which is, I think, beginning towards the end of the Obama term, there was this very conscious and public repositioning, which is to say that we'll only focus on a couple of issues. I think partly it reflects, as you said, the multiplicity of actors. As somebody pointed out, we've probably never had this many middle powers in history. But then I would say that the U.S., essentially has been quite cack-handed in the way it has behaved in recent years. Um, Partly because if, for example, um, you know, they with the Sudan mediation, it made sense to either do it in a full-throated way or not to do it at all. I think that the way that they did it in a half-hearted way, uh, looking for limited ceasefires, together with the Saudis, you needed much more muscular engagement. And they basically blocked other efforts to to advance the peace agreement, but then on their own part didn't really do it meaningfully. So sometimes maybe it would have made sense not to do it at all. But then the second thing is that, very frankly, I remember speaking to a national security official within the region and they pointed out that previously there was a policeman. We never always liked the policeman, but we knew their rules. And even where we didn't particularly like them, we could see the profit in abiding by a set of rules. I think that there is a degree of anarchy that's resulted from this vacuum where the West, um, the US in particular, has stepped back. I think there is a free for all to a certain degree. I think... Countries within the region bear uh, a large part of the blame because a lot of these wars are wars of choice and they could have avoided them. Um, But it doesn't help that the US seems so absent. And, uh, And then in some cases participates in a very half-hearted way. So I think there's definitely, uh, some have called it a world between orders, which is a bit optimistic because I'm not sure when the next order will arrive. Um, But certainly things look quite difficult and constrained and chaotic um, uh, within the region. And it really calls for more prudent decision-making.
1: I guess you could see both risks and opportunities in less US involvement. I mean, Maruti, you and I talked before about maybe... It was always difficult to think through maybe efforts to engage Al Shabaab in Somalia, for example. Now, not not an easy proposition, not guaranteed to work, but still probably worth trying, given how long that war's been going on. And that might be easier to do now with the US, less invested. But the sense of sort of anarchy you described, the world in flux, it does sort of seem like, again, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show, you know, things that might have been hard to imagine some years ago. Countries invading one another, for example. Prospects for that sort of thing are harder to dismiss than they were a few years ago, which of course is why Abby's initial comments about the Red Sea access before this Somaliland MOU were so alarming that constraints are breaking down to some degree everywhere, but that's particularly the case in the Horn.
0: That's a great point, Richard. And uh, so two things. One is that, yes, I think there definitely could be an opportunity. And to be fair to the Americans, yes, they used to be very opposed to the prospect, for example, of engagement with al-Shabaab, um, but their position has evolved to a certain degree. But essentially, if they are absent and you have maybe mediators from the Gulf or, or, or from the region, I think they might be more open if the Somali government is willing to explore that question. But yes, I think the anarchic um, sense we get, which is that interstate warfare had become very rare, including on the continent. Um, but now in this world and in this global environment where people feel that they can get away with violence, and as you and and, and the president uh, of crisis group, Comfortero, have pointed out that peace agreements have gone out of vogue, I think that general drift and that general trend towards The feeling that you can get out of the way with maximal um, efforts to grab power and resources and that there are very few consequences that come with it, I think that's very worrying. And I think that then calls for much greater prudence. I think one of the best arguments I've seen against war is that it just doesn't work. So I think it's not always... Um, you know the appeal to peace and and to respect for international law is out of vogue. But I think this hard nosed pragmatic question: that war is unpredictable, war is 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 potentially very problematic, and war very often leaves the country weaker. Maybe that's the hopefully the message that these leaders get out of the last few years.
1: And on that point, maybe Mariti, let's come back to Somaliland and Ethiopia, and as as we talked about. Now, many capitals uh, around the world have sort of repeated their, the importance of Somali's sovereignty, territorial integrity. But what should happen now in terms of what outside actors, but also, of course, the parties themselves? Addis Ababa, Prime Minister Abiy, hargeisa Somaliland President Musabee, what should they do? And what are the risks if this deal does go ahead as it's understood and involves Ethiopia's recognition of Somaliland's independence?
0: Well, Richard, there's a reason why the Horn of Africa is considered one of the most unstable parts of the world. It's the only place where we've seen countries break apart outside the Balkans over the last couple of decades. And that's because states here are very heavily contested and their legitimacy is questioned very heavily by segments of their population. And again, you have always the risk of either expansionism or irredentism in the Horn of Africa. So what needs to be done? I think first, all the parties need to recognize that any action that they take could potentially be very provocative and destabilizing. I would say the bigger responsibility lies with Ethiopia It's the largest country in the region. It's the one that historically has been at the center, at least in recent history of regional integration efforts. And so the Ethiopians need to be very careful. They need to avoid, for example, just precipitately deciding to recognize Somaliland because that will be seen as very provocative by Somalia. And maybe there are ways they could de-escalate. For example, could they offer uh, to focus on a commercial outlet to the sea rather than a military one? For Somalia also, they have a big responsibility. What do they need to do? They need to dial down their rhetoric, and I think they need to climb down. Um, The Somali government has said that it will not engage in negotiations unless Ethiopia vacates the MOU with Somaliland. But that's not a very reasonable position because you need perhaps to use that forum at the negotiating table to persuade the other side that what they are doing is not wise. And so I think it would make sense for them to engage. And then with Somaliland, I think they have made their point, I would say. I think they have made their point to Somalia uh, that the current status quo is not tolerable, that they feel Somalia doesn't ever take seriously negotiations between Somalia and Somaliland about its future status. And so Somaliland needs to be less maximalist focus less on full recognition but use this opportunity given potentially it can be a wake up call for Somalia to press for serious dialogue about what the future relations between Somalia and Somaliland will be. I would say that external actors have a very limited role in this. Um, a diplomacy is going out of fashion in the region. A lot of people now are settling things either by brute force or by coercion. And so I think the responsibility falls primarily on the national leaders in Addis Ababa, in Mogadishu, and Hargeisa. Marichi, thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks, thanks, Richard.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Horn, the Red Sea, on our website, crisisgroup.org. Listen also to our sister podcast, Called the Horn, bi-weekly podcast on the region including that episode that mariti mentioned i also want to flag that crisis group has a couple of new podcasts one is called ripple effect it looks at the u.s elections this year their global implications in particular and the other is a french language podcast on africa it's called afrique 360 degree excuse my accent and you can find them on our website or wherever you get your podcasts so do check those out Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. As ever, please do get in touch, podcasts at crisisgroup.org or outward at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next time.